You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So I'm going to give you a little tour of my house. In particular, I'm going to give you a little tour of the bathrooms in my house. In every single bathroom is a basket with reading material, because if you're going to spend a decent amount of time in the bathroom, you need good reading material. And the baskets in my house are stashed with design magazines, because I like real estate. I like design. I like decorating. I like shopping for all of the different things that you can use to design and decorate your home. I spend an inordinate amount of time just surfing listings on realtor.com and zillow.com because I I like to look even when I'm not even shopping. But today we're going to talk about design of another sort. We're going to talk about designing your life. And we've got Bill Burnett on the line. He is a consulting assistant professor at Stanford, the executive director of its design program, and the co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. Bill, welcome. Thanks so much for Skyping in. You're welcome. And, uh, you know, I have baskets in my bathrooms as well, and they are also full of design and uh, robotics magazines. Oh, robotics magazines. I'll have to try that. I wrote a book once called Money Rules that I told everybody was a really good bathroom book because you could open it up and you could go to any page and learn something. And in fact, I think it found its way into an awful lot of bathrooms. (laughs) That's great. Um, tell me about this whole concept. I mean, what made you, I know that the course came about first, the book followed the course, but what made you apply the principles of design to life? Yeah, well, you, you made a, a good distinction at the very beginning. There's two kinds of ways we talk about design, and, and I teach design here at Stanford. One is as a as a skill set and a craft to learn to design well, to, to learn composition and form and color and all those things. But at Stanford, we've also been teaching what we call design thinking, a sort of innovation methodology. It's kind of our secret sauce, our, our thing that we've been doing in the design world for a long, long time now. And uh, about 10 years ago, we started an institute called the D School, which has become a very, very popular and a place that's has sort of been taking this message of an innovation methodology out into the world. While I was teaching design classes, I was also advising my students and the students were coming in, you know, uh, right about now in spring quarter, lots of them coming <laughs> in. Saying, I, I, I don't know. About, I don't know how to launch. I don't know what to do with my life. I'm not sure what happens next. You know, I've only ever been a student. You know, how do you do this life thing? And I was having lots and lots of office hours. And my uh, my buddy, um, Dave Evans, who's the co-author of the book, was also having the same experience. He was teaching a, a similar thing over at Berkeley. So we got together and we said, look, why don't we just apply these principles of design, how to innovate our lives, to this problem? Because it's so obviously the same kind of problem. It's open-ended. It's ambiguous. You don't really know what you're going to get in the future. Designers are always inventing 
the future, right? When they invented mm-hmm. the first iPhone, and no one had ever seen one of those before. I was at Apple for seven years uh, before the phones. I was on the first laptop team. We kind of invented what a laptop looked like. So designers are really good at inventing the future, and it seemed like that was really the problem my students were facing. And then we did a lot of research. Uh, in addition to teaching the class, we've been out and talking to you know sort of thirty somethings and forty somethings, and people who are thinking about retiring, and people who are already in their encore career. And all of them told us, "Yeah, it's you know we don't have a lot of tools for figuring out what comes next. We don't. We're not very good at inventing what comes next. We have a lot of anxiety around it, and things we discovered the psychologists call dysfunctional beliefs, like." You should figure it. You should have it known. You should have it all figured out by 30. If you don't, you're late or you should follow your passion, which most people don't have. Right. <laughs> so we, we, as, as we started doing more research and working with our students, it just it just turned out that design is a really it, it's a great framework for for having some ideas and tools to unlocking this really interesting thing called the rest of our lives. Well, and you talk about the fact that finding the problem, actually figuring out what the problem is, is as important, if not more important, than solving the problem. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. You know, and and it's the same thing in design. When you get a problem from a client or a customer, it's almost always the wrong problem. It's almost always too narrow or too small or it's really kind of a solution masquerading as a problem. You know, you're a company that makes wheelbarrows and you want new wheelbarrow ideas, which is kind of just a solution to new wheelbarrows. It's not about new ways of moving things around job sites. So um, when people are thinking about their lives, they're often trying to solve the wrong problem. Like, oh, I don't like my job or I don't like my boss or, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with my relationship. And so they think a new relationship would solve the problem or a new boss would solve the problem. And most often when they use our design tools and they really, you know, we, we say our design process starts with empathy, empathy for yourself. What do you really want and need and empathy for the world? What does the world need from you? What's, what's the world looking for in the world? And if you can match what you really need and what the world needs, if those things match, you've got a fantastic opportunity to really live into an interesting life. But most people don't take the time to figure out, well, what, what is it that they really want? Um, it's not a new boss. It's a, if you look at the research, typically people are happy on their job when they have autonomy, mastery, mm-hmm. and purpose. Some autonomy to do things the way they want to do them. They're learning a lot. They're generating their mastery and they can link it to some purpose in their life. So once you start looking at the real problem and the right, and you find the right problem for you, a whole new set of solutions open up. And that's when uh, that's when you can get really creative and that's when it gets interesting. Does adopting this style of thinking require a complete overhaul of your life or can you tweak along the way? Because I think wholesale change is really difficult for people. No, it's really, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, it's it's called, the book's called Designing Your Life, How to Live a Well-Lived Joyful Life. It's not called How to Completely Redesign Everything and, you know, Throw Away you know, the whole old thing and start something new. Most of the people we work with who, who do um, our three odyssey plans and they write a life view and a work view, they end up adapting what they've got and making it a little bit better. We, we like to say you set the bar low and you clear it and then you do that over and over again. So it's not about, you know, I'm the, I'm the seven figure CEO, but I really want to be a poet. And then one day you wake up and you're a poet. That doesn't, that doesn't really happen. Most mostly people just find small things they can do to um, to tweak what they're already doing by finding the right problem to work on. They often can unlock a new solution. It doesn't even require a lot of change, 
It is about a mindset. We talked about the mindsets of designers and, and the two that are the big ones are start from curiosity. What are you curious about? Don't be skeptical. Don't be doubting. Let's just try to find some things that you're curious about. We'll, we'll live and work into those. And learning how to reframe problems so that you can open them up and find new um, solution spaces. If you have those two mindsets, you're in great shape. Let's try an example. I mean, when we're talking about reframing a problem, or as you sometimes call it, a wicked life problem, um, which I just like the sound of that. I mean, give me an example of a wicked life problem, maybe that one of your your students had or somebody else that, that used this process had, and how did they apply this methodology to tweak their life? I had a, um, a recent graduate who was in, in his first job. He was in an engineering role. Uh, he was at a great company. He was one of the, you know, one of the famous big companies here in the Valley that I won't name, but like an Apple or a Google or a Facebook or something like that. So he had what everybody thought was the dream job. And it turned out it was really, it was really kind of boring. And he had a lot of ideas for how to make it better, but his boss would never meet with him. And so his conclusion was, I have a bad boss and a bad job. I need to move. And we got together because I have, um, I have a deal with my students. Uh, so does Dave. If you're one of them, if you've ever taken a class from me, you get office hours for life. Love so he that. Came back about, yes, it's, it's really funny. He came back about two years uh, into his first job and he said, okay, I'm, I'm really, uh, I have a bad boss and a bad job. I made a bad choice. And I think, I think I need to move my company. I said, well, well, stop a second. Let's start with curious. What are you curious about? He goes, you know, my boss is a smart guy. I don't understand why he's, he's so upset all the time and he doesn't want to talk to me. I said, okay, well, that's an interesting. Let's go have empathy for that situation and ask him some questions. And by the way, you say you're bored. What would you really like to do with your know, job? Do you have your brainstorm that? He said, no. And so we did a little brainstorm. We came up with three projects that he could do from the job he was in that would be really interesting. So I said, okay, your, your assignment is have a prototype conversation with your boss. Find out what's going on with him. Just ask him questions. What's his story? How did he get there? You know, does he like his job? Where did he go to high school? Just ask him questions. He'll, he'll tell you stories. And then um, take one of your three prototypes and propose it. So he did that. And just out of curiosity, it turns out his boss was not unhappy with him. He was not unhappy with anything else. His boss was unhappy with some situation in his, in his, in his life. Because of this situation, he was going to have to quit and move you know, to a different part of the country. Once my student found out, you know, have empathy for this guy's situation. Oh, you're not a bad boss. You're just in a bad situation in your life and you need to move. Then he proposed, hey, well, since you're going to move anyway and it doesn't matter, I've got this project idea. Do you think I could work on that? He said, sure. Go ahead and work on that. I don't care. I'm leaving anyway. So my student worked on his project. It got a ton of visibility. The, the senior vice president of the engineering group looked at this thing and said, wow, we should have been doing this kind of testing this way all the time. My student got promoted. The other guy left. They're still good friends. And it was all because, and it was all because nobody ever stopped to ask the question, why is the situation not working? People are smart and they're kind typically and, and they want to do a good job. And so it's not, you, you hardly ever have a bad boss. You might have a bad situation or a bad placement, but that was one example of just a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of brainstorming. And now he's in a situation where he's got three people working for him. And he's super happy in the exact same job. You have to love that. Um, we're going to come back in one second and talk about the other 
core mindsets regarding design thinking. But let me just take a minute to remind everybody here that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. That's why we're spending time having this conversation about designing our lives. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Bill Burnett. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or getting divorced or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We are with Bill Burnett, Stanford professor, author of Designing Your Life, the bestseller. You know, one thing I've always wondered about design People tend to either say, oh, that's really good design, or that's not such good design. And is that quantifiable, or is that something that's just more in the eye of the beholder? You know, I, I think you can quantify it, and I, I think it is one of those things you know when you see it. But I think, you know, when you've been trained in design, you kind of know why something works. Um, I think Steve Jobs was you know, famous for saying design isn't what um, what things look like on the outside. It's not about making it pretty. Design is how things work. So, you know, when we, when I was at Apple, we spent a lot of time making sure that, that your experience of, of trying to get something done on a Mac was pretty seamless and pretty easy. When you're experiencing a design as being elegant or easy or, um, or, um, you know, having a good experience, a positive emotional experience with the design. That's an example of great design. Dieter Rums, the famous, um, designer for Braun for years and years and years, the guy who sort of invented, you know, branded industrial design long before Apple. Um, he, he had 10 rules of design. One of his rules was, Good design is as little design as possible. In other words, you, you shouldn't even notice it. It should just work. And that to me is something um, that designers work really, really hard to do. And it, when you when you get it right, it, it's it's magical. And when you get it right in your life design, when you, you, you've finally figured out, you know, you've asked the right questions, you've prototyped a bunch of different solutions, you've come across something that's really working for you, you experience what psychologists call st- states of flow. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I know slow, yeah. Mihaly Cheek sent me high, right? Yeah, that guy with a hard name to pronounce, he he sort of, quote, invented it, I guess, or discovered this state. I mean, humans have been having this state in the zone and, you know, in the moment kind of for for millennia. But um, when you're, you know, you should be looking on your in your job and in your life for places where you do experience states of flow because that means you're working at the peak of your ability on a problem that's, just hard enough to challenge you, but not so hard that it's frustrating. And I always think of flow as as when you forget to go to the bathroom. I mean, we're having a bathroom themed show here, so you know that's <laughs> you forget to eat, you forget to, you know that you look up and the clock says four o'clock and you don't know where the time went. Yeah, it's absolutely it is it's amazing. I um I've been um although I do a lot of drawing and stuff, it's more in the in the technical realm, and so I've been taking a life drawing class, drawing you know, from, from figures. And my class is on a Monday night and, I, you know, I go in at six o'clock and I, I look up at nine 30 and the models are get, coming off the stage and everybody's packing up. And I'm like, what? We just, we just started. Yeah. That sense of just being so engaged in what you're doing. Um, and it's so enjoyable. So, you know, one of, one of our ideas is if you're not having those states, you know, on a regular basis, either in your job or your life, 
then something's missing. Some challenge is missing. Some some connection to your your own strengths is missing. And that's where again you start start with curiosity. Figure out what you're what you're most interested in. Prototype this whole idea of building small you know experiments in your life to see what works before you go all in on something. It's so critical. And what we hear back from you know, uh, we just heard back from the um, our editor at Knopf that they're going into the eighth printing on the book, which is great. Congratulations. Yeah, what we hear back from people is um, on two things. One, this idea of prototyping. You mean I can actually try things and, and discover my future, you know, in an almost, you know, risk-free format? I mean, we talk about you want to you fail fast and fail early with little tiny prototypes to discover what's going to work for you. So ultimately you do succeed. So the idea of prototyping and then this idea of reframing around your curiosity seem to be the two things we hear back from readers um, that are the easiest to adopt and, and are the most powerful. So we've talked a lot about several of the core mindsets. We've talked about curiosity, about reframing. Talk to me a little bit about bias to action and radical collaboration. Yeah, well, you know, um, there's a there's an old expression, I guess, an old military expression that no plan of battle survives first contact with the enemy, and and I reframe that, or Dave and I reframe that as no plan for your life survives first contact with reality, because even if you have a plan, you know, stuff happens in the world. Um, you know, there's a, a, a layoff at the, at your job, or you know, you something, you know, you, you have something comes up that you have to deal with that wasn't on your on your plan, so. Um, we're not that we think that life is sort of an emergent uh, experience. It happens uh, and you you sort of, you know, try to ride the wave and make good choices. But lots of things are going to happen. So we're not big on planning and design because you can't really plan too much around the future. But this bias to action idea is that, you know, if you have some curiosity about something, go try it, mm-hmm. prototype it. Immediately. Don't, and don't don't wait until you have all the all the ideas or all the answers. So the bias to action keeps you moving. And it's again, it's this idea of set the bar low, try some simple experiments, some simple prototypes, um, learn from them, do it again, learn from them, do it again. It's what um, David Kelly called in his book uh, Creative Competence. It's building up that sense that you are a creative person and that you can come up with good ideas. And then radical collaboration is just like the your experience and your joy in in work and in the world is out in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not in your head. You got to collaborate with people. You got to you got to meet people that you wouldn't normally meet. Get out of your own echo chamber. Um, go be curious and ask you know some someone who who does something interesting uh, for thirty minutes of their time. Buy them a cup of coffee and and see you know see what it is that they do and see if it's interesting to you. Um, the the world is full of interesting people, and almost all of them are willing to tell you their story. So if you can just get out there and collaborate with them, and particularly with people who aren't like you, you learn so much more about what's what's possible and what's available to you. As we wrap this up, so many of the folks who listen to her money, I, I know, would like to redesign their relationship with money. Any suggestions there? Oh, you know, I, I, I was listening to some of your podcasts and it reminded me, you know, we say in design, we start with empathy, then we redefine the problem, come up with lots of ideas and prototypes. But actually in, in life design, there's a, there's a step before empathy and it's called accept. Uh, my co-instructor, uh, co-instructor Dave would say, you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. I think a lot of people, and not just women, but a lot of people, their relationship with money is they don't want to think about it. 
They just hope it would be work, work itself out in it. They wish it would go away. And so they haven't actually accepted, okay, wait a minute. If I'm going to be responsible here and if I'm going to manage this well, I have to decide that money is a problem I want to work on. That how I save and what my relationship to money is, is an important thing in my life. And so I want to accept that as a problem I'm willing to work on. And once that happens, we discover if I'm, if I'm going to work on this, then I want to be successful. If I want to be successful, I need a good strategy. If I had, need a good strategy, I can use this design thinking thing and curiosity and reframing and prototyping. You can do a lot of prototyping around money and money solutions. Um, the, the fact it's, it's more easy, to, it's easier to do that now than ever before because you've got online tools and all sorts of ways of analyzing and thinking about what would happen if I treated money as a problem I'm willing to have. So that would be, that would be our first step. Just accept. I'm going to embroider that on some sort of a sampler. You can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. I love that. Bill Burnett, thank you so much for a great conversation. It just gave me a lot to go out into the world with. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it too. All right. And we will be right back with Kelly in just a sec. So Kelly has joined me in the studio, and uh, I think we're both a little bit in awe. I have a little bit of a crush. Me too. I have this high right now. We just got a free lecture from Bill Burnett. Yep. Yeah, well, and you were watching, so you yes. were not in the studio. I was in the studio. I couldn't see him on mm-hmm. Skype, but you could see him. I could see him, and I was just enthralled and engaged the entire time. You can see why he's a rock star professor. Absolutely, and... Going back to like, I I kept on thinking throughout everything he was saying, the importance of asking yourself why, especially with the anecdote about the student with the boss, asking why, like, why is the other person acting this way? Just questioning everything. And I don't think we think to do it enough. Well, and also there's something I think very female about this notion. I'm always convinced it's me. You know, I'm always convinced they don't like me. Mm -hmm. It's something I did. You know, how did I offend them? Right. What did I say? Right. You know, even if I have absolutely no idea, I am sure that I did something. Mm -hmm. And this kind of a be curious. I mean, his he was so, of course, somebody's going to tell you their story if you ask them their story. Mm -hmm. People don't get asked that enough. Nope. Nope. And just like we like you just said, I do too, taking it personally, we're always, we're thinking about ourselves. So then also remembering that the other person across from us is probably just thinking about him or herself. Right. It all comes back to it. But no, I am blown away. Thank you, Bill Burnett. Yeah. Feeling very inspired. Absolutely. And we have questions. Yay. Let's go. Our first question is from Riley on Facebook. She writes, in the last year, I've gotten far more serious about my finances and made some big moves. I agree with your mantra that you should always try to negotiate job offers. But what's your advice for working with recruiters who might not have room to negotiate or knowledge of wiggle room? And also, what's your advice for taking the initial job offer after your request for a higher amount is declined? I would not give recruiters such a pass. Recruiters may tell you that they don't have any knowledge of what the wiggle room is, but they can absolutely find out. Even if you're working with a recruiter, I think the same advice applies. You ask for more. You figure out what the job should be paying based on the industry, based on the company, based on the experience, based on 
what you bring to the table, you ask for more. And then if you ask for more and they say, no, there is no wiggle room, then maybe they didn't hold anything back. And if you want the job, you take it. So how can we approach recruiters in getting the best possible offer for us? I think the very same way that you would approach an employer. This is what I bring to the table. Remember, it's the recruiter is just the go-between between you and the employer. And they have to make your case. This is what this person brings to the table. This is why you want this person on your team. This is why they are the best person for the job. You have to make that case so that they can make the case for you because that's exactly what they're doing on the on the other end. And you should make it as far as salary goes as well. And if they're a good recruiter, they're going to want to place you not just once, but several times in the future. So they're going to want to maintain a good relationship with you as well. Good to know. And we have another message from Facebook from a listener who would like to remain anonymous, which is totally fine. Just let me know. Mm -hmm. I'm currently paying down $4,000 of credit card debt while building my savings and will have all debt paid off by October of this year. Yay. Yeah. My question is, my boyfriend, whom I love, is a first-year medical resident and has amassed huge student loans to the tune of $500,000. Oh, my God. I know. I cringed when I saw that. We have a serious relationship, but I'm afraid of how his student loans will affect our relationship if when we get married. When he finishes residency, he will have a good salary, but it will take many, many years to pay off his loans. So I think she's looking for guidance on like how to approach the subject with her potential fiancé and then also um, if there are any ways to compartmentalize it. Yeah, so a couple of things to do. First of all, your boyfriend should be looking into student loan forgiveness programs, public service loan forgiveness. Now, these programs have been in the news a little bit lately and not for the best of reasons. There is some question about whether or not they're going to hold up. And so I want you to make sure that you're keeping up to date with the news and that you look at everything as you present this to him. But they work particularly well for doctors because you can um, – serve your 10 years that it takes to go through public service loan forgiveness at a not-for-profit hospital, by the time that you're done with your residency and if there's some sort of fellowship, you're almost through the 10 years and you can continue to work at a not-for-profit hospital knowing that 10 years in, your debt will be wiped clean. So with a debt that's that high, I would be very, very adamant about looking into that sort of a program combined with income-based repayment to make sure that you can both have a life. The other thing that I would say, and it's probably not something that was on your radar, is prenup. Um, a prenup can actually serve to help you separate your debts to keep your debts separate so that if something should happen, um, you have a document in place that basically has pre-negotiated how you're going to handle the money in the family. I know it sounds not at all romantic, but don't think about it as divorce protection. Think about it as um, protecting the way that this financial life of the two of yours that's going to be complicated just because this debt exists, um, that you are sitting down to pre-negotiate how this will work best. 
usually we think about prenups when there are a lot of assets, when people are bringing a lot of assets to the equation. But I, I would think about it in this case. I did not see you going in the prenup direction, but I don't know that I would have gone the prenup direction. But I, I was at a、uh, a panel last night at the New York Historical Society moderating a panel on what happens next after you get divorced, after you lose a spouse. On the panel with me,、um, two very smart women, a, a, an estate planning attorney, and a Um, financial advisor, actually a CPA with a specialty in personal finance, and we talked a lot about prenups. So they were fresh in my mind, and sometimes even I forget the fact that they can be very useful tools for deciding how you're going to manage your money when you get married. And Laying those things out. If look, if you can't have these conversations, if you can't talk about them before you get married, you shouldn't be getting married.、Mm-hmm. So I think in in this particular case, it's a good idea. That's a really good point. If you can't have a civil discussion about this before making it official or making it contractual, don't make it contractual. Don't make it contractual or official. Okay. And our final question is an email from Robin. Robin writes, "I'm 39 years old, currently maxing out my company's 401k, and I make too much annually to contribute to a Roth IRA." I do not own a home, but I have no debt. I've saved a one-year emergency fund, and I have a Betterment account. I have a monthly cash surplus that I want to make sure I'm doing something smart with. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around whether it's more advantageous to contribute five thousand five hundred annually to a traditional non-deductible IRA, if I should put it into my Betterment account, or if there is another alternative that I have not considered. I'm open to ideas and would love to hear your thoughts. Well, I would think about what you want to do with this money. I think we let our plans guide us forward, rather than trying to back into a decision. So think about what you may want to use it for. Maybe are you planning to buy real estate, a first home, in the near future? Are you thinking that you may want to take a huge trip? Are you thinking that you truly do just want to have it for the long term for retirement? Are you thinking that you may want to change gears and you may need this money to live on? And and the reason that we think about all these things is because if you put the money into an IRA, which does have advantages, you're not going to get a tax deduction because you're already getting it for your 401k, but you are. Going to enable the money to grow tax deferred, and you'll pay the income taxes on that sum of money when you retire. You're also locking it up in terms of liquidity. If you want to get it out of there, you're not going to be able to do that without paying a penalty. That may not be something that you want to subject yourself to if you think that you may want to use the money before retirement. In that case, putting the money just into your investment account is a perfectly fine. Thing to do, and by the way, having money on which you've already paid taxes, whether it's in a Roth IRA or just a discretionary account, when you get to retirement, is a really good thing to do. It gives you、um, tax diversification in addition to investment diversification. And so, I would probably,、um, if you have other goals for it, lean toward putting it into the discretionary account. And if you really think this is money that you're not going to touch for twenty years, twenty five years, then put it in an IRA. I didn't know that you can earn too much to have a Roth IRA or earn more、yes. than you, so that you can't qualify for one. Yeah, no, the income limitations cap out on a Roth IRA. 
did not know. Absolutely. Thank you, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. And if you have questions, please send them to us at jeanchatsky.com. Jean at jeanchatsky.com is our preferred home for questions, although if you send us a tweet or if you tag us on Facebook, we will find you. Yes, and we also have a podcast question box on jeanchatsky.com. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. In today's Thrive segment, interesting that we got a, a question today on negotiating salary because another equal pay day. Yes, it has come and gone. I'm curious to hear from all of you out there how you feel about the fact that we are still highlighting the fact that women on average are paid 20% less than men. Are you in the camp of this needs as much attention as possible or are you more in the camp of Senator Elizabeth Warren who said in a speech that she is tired of celebrating this, quote, National Day of Embarrassment. Drop me an email. Let me know what you think. But for some relatively good news, there are some states that are moving the dial in the right direction, namely Florida. A new study from the Institute for Women's Policy Research says Florida could be the first state to do away with the gender wage gap. And okay, it will take another 20 years, but that is 20 years better than the United States as a whole, which the report says won't do the same until gasp 2059. What if you don't want to wait that long? Focus on closing your own personal wage gap by earning as much as possible for someone in your industry. There is a tool on thebalance.com, which is the personal finance site from about.com, where, full disclosure, I'm a senior editor, that allows you to input your age, your gender, your industry, and calculate how much you should be earning. Then... Armed with that information, start talking about salary with the other women in your industry. This is something that Meredith Rollins, editor-in-chief of Red Book Magazine, recommended to us on an earlier episode of Her Money. You should all listen to it if you haven't. She told us exactly how she did it, and she argued that this transparency could help us all reach pay parity. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for a great conversation to Bill Burnett. I was just so inspired. I'm going to go out and think about designing my life to bring it in line with what I want and what I need. And I hope all of you will do the same. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. We would prefer five stars. We want to know what you think, but we'd also like to know that you're listening. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when I'll be talking with Christy Wright, author of the new book, Business Boutique, and a Ramsey personality, as in Dave Ramsey, will be in the studio with me. We'll talk soon.